Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Well, thank you, Pastor Matt. That's a very kind and gracious introduction. I thank you for the opportunity to be here and for another opportunity to connect with Bible Center Church. I got to thinking just this week, it was 30 years ago, almost to the day, August 5th, 1990, that I preached the first time at Bible Center Church. And uh, there's a long story behind that, but the Lord has given us many opportunities to be back with you, which we have enjoyed thoroughly and always love and delight being here and being able to fellowship with you and worship with you and on these occasions to be able to minister the Word of God. Uh, I, I have come to love your pastor all of your staff, but your senior pastor, I've come to love him and appreciate him. We have a great affinity in ministry and in life, and we're, I'm grateful for that relationship. And when he gets as old as I am in three or three to five years, then uh, yes, I hope, hope we're more alike. Um, history has given us many examples of leaders giving stirring speeches to motivate their nation to rise to the challenge of difficult times. You see some of them on the screen there, President Abraham Lincoln. When he dedicated the cemetery at Gettysburg after that horrific battle in in July of 1863, uh, said these words, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but they can never forget what they did here, and then in words that the world would long remember and would not be able to forget, he went on to describe what he saw as a new vision for a country that would be birthed out of the tragedy of the Civil War. He challenged his listeners to resolve, and I quote, that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Stirring words. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, in his first inaugural address in March of 1933, said to a nation gripped in the icy fear of the Depression, with that famous swagger of his head, which I will not try to emulate today, he said these words, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And then one of my favorite characters in all of history, Winston Churchill, the prime minister of Britain during World War II, gave such stirring speeches to his people to rally them in times when they were really hopeless. For instance, to the House of Commons in 1940, just after that amazing evacuation of 338,000 soldiers from the beaches of Dunkirk, and with an imminent, fearsome, invasion of Nazi on the horizon, he said this, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. But I think one of, his, uh, one of the speeches he made that is my favorite was a year later, on December 30th, 1941, to the House of Commons, when he said to the, the House of Commons these words, 
when I told the leaders of France that we would continue on regardless of what they did, their generals told their prime minister and their divided cabinet, in three weeks, England's neck will be wrung like a chicken's. And he paused for dramatic effect, made sure every eye was on him, and then he uttered these four words, some chicken, some neck. And with those kinds of speeches, he rallied the people to fight the battle that was so important to fight. But history's most unusual challenge came not from a political leader, but from God himself. And it was delivered to his nation Israel and to a leader that he had raised up to help the people address the darkest time in their history. That challenge is recorded for us in Judges chapter 7. So I invite your attention this evening to Judges chapter 7. That chapter tells us how God prepared Gideon and his troops for the greatest battle of their lives. And we all face battles, don't we? We face physical battles, spiritual battles, financial battles, relational battles. And I do not need to remind you, nor do I need to labor the point, that our world is in one of the greatest crises ever in its history, and certainly probably the greatest that we have ever encountered in our lifetime. But that pandemic that we are under now and the national unrest that we are facing in our country has left many of you, many of us, battling some other battles as well. Maybe tonight you're battling fear. Maybe you're battling illness. Maybe you're battling loneliness, isolation. Maybe you're battling a job loss. Maybe you're fighting a financial difficulty. Probably all of us are facing a great deal of uncertainty. Who knows what our future is going to be like Who knows what's going to happen in the next week or month or year? Will things ever get back to normal? And all of that anxiety, all of that fear creeps up on us. And we're facing some battles, maybe like we've never faced before. So today, I want us to see how God challenges us to meet the most difficult battles of life. Because I'm convinced, as I read this story in Judges, that how God challenged Gideon is the same way he is challenging us today. So how did God challenge Gideon to meet a battle that was far beyond his ability to win? How does God challenge us in the battles that we face, in the challenges that we face that are far too great for us to handle on our own? How does he challenge us? Well, actually, in this story, there are four challenges that God gives to Gideon and to us. The first of those is in verses 1 and 2, and it is this. Be humble. Now, I know what you're thinking. Really? This is a challenge that's supposed to help us meet a battle that we can't win on our own, that we a challenge that we really can't face on our own, and this is where you're going to start? Be humble? Can you imagine a basketball coach gathering his or her team around them in the locker room before a big game and challenging that team? This is our house. We will not let anyone come into our house and take what is ours. These are our fans. You hear them out there? 
We will not let anyone come in here and silence our fans. This is our court. We will not let anyone come in here and take a victory off of our court. So go out there and be humble. It just doesn't have the right ring to it, does it? But that's exactly where God starts. The first challenge to Gideon and to us is be humble. Look at verse 1 with me. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now, maybe a little bit of a historical background here will help us to understand the setting and what Gideon was really facing. For the eighth year in a row, the desert-dwelling Midianites have invaded Israel at harvest time. They are scattered across the Jezreel Valley, a beautiful, fertile valley in the northern part of Israel. Chapter 8 and verse 10 tells us that there were 135,000 troops in that Midianite army. And they expect to carry out their usual policy of an uncontested stripping of the land and a triumphant march back home with all of Israel's crops. Mission accomplished. But this time, God has a surprise in store for them. This time, he has raised up Gideon. He has empowered him by his spirit, and Gideon has raised an army. From where Gideon and his army get a drink in that valley. They are camped just across the valley. From where they get a drink, they can see the Midianite army, and oh, what a sight it is. If you look down at verse 12, the Bible says the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. This is a formidable sight, a formidable army. 135,000 of them camped in the valley. They have camels. Now, that's the military transport vehicle of the day. And I'm sure that Gideon looks across, see those tents spread all across the eastern part of that valley, sees all of those camels, and then he looks back at his 32,000 men, not a professional army, probably not a trained army, probably with not even the, the appropriate instruments of warfare. Later on, we find out they have pitchers, torches, and trumpets. That's not what you go into battle with, is it? So he looks at his 32 men and says, 32,000 men and says, there is no way. We are outnumbered four to one. There's no way we will win this battle. And then God speaks those amazing words in verse 2. You've got too many men, Gideon. We've got to whittle down the size of this army. We've got to cut the numbers. Amazing statement from the God of heaven. But did you see why he said that at the end of verse 2? He says, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. You, you see, my friend, if a victory or an achievement in your life makes you self-reliant, that is worse than a defeat. 
If a victory or achievement in your life makes you self-reliant, makes you think you can do it on your own, then that's worse than if you had suffered a defeat. It is God who gives us blessing. It is God who gives us strength. It is God who gives us everything we have and enables us to be everything we are. All the credit and the glory belongs to him. But when we start taking the credit for who we are or what we've done, then we are robbing God of the glory that only he deserves. Do you see what God is saying here? God is telling us, you can't be too small for God to use, but you can be too big for God to use. When you think, oh, look, look, look at my abilities. Look at my experience. Look at my education. God sure is lucky to have me. Now, just think about that statement for a moment, how ludicrous that sounds. First of all, God sure is lucky. That's the worst theology I've ever heard, Pastor Matt. God is lucky? The only way that statement could be made any worse is to tag onto the end of it, God sure is lucky to have me. That's a terrible statement. It's a terrible thought that we have something that God benefits from. The God who created all things, the God who existed before all things, the God of great glory, majesty, power, who has all wisdom, all knowledge. Really? He's lucky to have us? The story is, is told of Billy Graham. Back in 1992, he, he did an interview with Primetime Live, which was an ABC news program at that time. It's on the air for 23 years. And it was at the height of his ministry and as the interviewer was talking with him, they paused and played a clip of some of the greatest moments in his life and supposedly the greatest achievements in his ministry. And it was quite stirring, but it, all the while, as it was playing, Billy Graham sat with his head down. He wouldn't watch it. And when the clip finished, the interviewer looked at him and said, what do you want people to say about you when you're gone? I'll never forget the response. He said, oh, this was an uncrafted, unprepared response from his heart. He said, I don't want people to say anything about me. All I want them to do is talk about Jesus and to know him. And all I want to hear is Jesus saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Then he dropped his head again and he said, but I'm not sure I'm going to hear that. You know, maybe one of the greatest reasons for his success and how God mightily used him was because of his humility, genuine humility. You know, that's what the scriptures tell us, James chapter 4 and verse 6, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. James is quoting from Proverbs 3.34. Peter quotes the same passage, and then right after he says it, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, Peter says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, since God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So the first challenge to us in the, the, the difficulties we face and the battles that are before us is this, be Humble. Recognize who God is. Recognize who you are. The second challenge that God gives to Gideon and to us is this. Be fearless. 
Look at verse 3. Be fearless. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. I wonder what Gideon was thinking as he watched two-thirds of his army walk away. Why would God say something like this? Why would God say, if you're afraid, just go home? I mean, isn't everybody afraid going into battle? Why would God say this? Well, very interestingly, God had anticipated this very situation. Years before, when Israel had, uh, was still wandering in the wilderness, before they had gotten into the land, God had anticipated this exact situation and given Moses instructions as to how to proceed if they ever found themselves in this very situation. Look at it. It's Deuteronomy chapter 20, where God tells Moses these words, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, exactly the situation we find in Judges 7, when you see that, do not be afraid of them. Why? Because the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt will be with you. Notice that God promises his presence. Don't be afraid against odds that are too great for you because God promises his presence. He goes on to say, when you're about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, here, Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be fainthearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. Why? Second reason, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. So notice, God promises his presence and his power. He is with you and he goes to fight against your enemy. He promises his presence. He promises his power in the battle. Then the priests are to go on to address the army and say, okay, if you have this condition, that condition, this life situation, you, you don't have to fight in the battle. You can stay home. And the last one of those conditions is in verse 8. Notice this. Then the officer shall add, is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home. Now, here's the reason why God gives this instruction. So that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. Fear is contagious. Fear is catching. You get it from others. And aren't we experiencing that now? You get fear from looking at the numbers rising every day. You get fear from, from hearing all the reports. You get fear from reading all the social media posts. And so I had someone call me just a couple of weeks ago, a, a dear godly Christian lady, one of the most godly Christian ladies I know, and she was in a state of panic. Someone had just posted something on social media. It upset her so much. She said, I am struggling so much with fear over this pandemic and all that's happening in our country. What do I do? By the way, please be careful that you don't peddle fear on social media. Please be careful what you post. Be careful what you read and take in because God is not a God of fear. He has promised in the battle to be with us, his presence, and to fight for us, his power. He has promised that to us. 
But fear is contagious, and it is possible to catch it from everything that we hear and read and experience and wonder about about the future. It is so important that we remember this. What a great time for us as believers to show an unshakable faith and a calm peace to a world that's in fear. Folks, these are 1 Peter 3.15 moments for us where we are to revere the Lord Christ in our hearts and we are to be ready to give an answer to those who ask a reason for the hope that is in us. When people look at us, they should see hope, not fear and panic. They should see an unshakable faith and a powerful, all-present God, not fear and panic. They should see a, a calm peace and a God who's promised to be with us. These are great moments for us to show the peace and power and presence of God. So be fearless, God says to us. And then there is a third challenge that God gives to Gideon and to us. And it is this, be focused. Be focused. Look with me, if you will, at verse 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. Then the Lord, or there the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. And then this last kind of chilling statement in verse 8, now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. He sees that camp again. Now he's down to 300 men. You know, God was testing these men. It's an interesting test. It's a very simple test. Take them, Gideon, to the, to the brook to drink and see what they do. Very simple. It was also a secret test. You know, the soldiers had no idea they were being tested. They had no idea what God was doing. All they knew is they were going to go down and get a drink. They had no idea that God was giving them a test. By the way, most of God's tests of us are pop quizzes. I remember when I was in college and seminary when they still actually used paper, one of the most chilling things you could hear a professor say was, at the beginning of class, take out a clean piece of paper. Because you knew, and oh, the hair would stand up on the back of your neck and a chill would go down your spine because you knew the professor was going to give you a quiz on the lecture from the previous class or from the reading you were supposed to have done last night. And the questions were going to be asked in such a way that you would not be able to snow the professor. You would have to know. You would have to remember. Most of God's tests are pop quizzes. God doesn't typically say to us, be careful, watch Tuesday. It's coming Tuesday. Just wait. You'll see. 
I'm going to really test you Tuesday. Now, there are some responsibilities we know that we have on our calendars that if God's providence allows that to unfold, that'll be a test. It'll be tough. But most of the time, God's tests are pop quizzes. We don't know they're coming, but they reveal where we are spiritually. These men are undergoing a test, simple test, secret test, but it's also a significant test. The Bible doesn't say this specifically, but it seems apparent as you read this text and follow the flow of thought that these men are being tested by the manner in which they drink as regards their focus. So you see, those who get down on all fours and just dip their head down in the brook and drink for all they're worth are not really focused on their purpose for being there. They're not focused on the enemy. They're more focused about quenching their thirst. Those, however, who get water in their hand, remain standing, and lap it out of their hand like a dog, are focused on the enemy. They realize why they are there, and they have not taken their focus off their purpose for being there. So the whole point here was, I'm going to leave with you the men to do battle who are focused on why they're here. Now, how does that translate to you and to me? How does it translate to us? What are we supposed to focus on? Well, thankfully, the Scriptures give us exactly what we are to focus on. The writer of Hebrews tells us in those familiar verses in Hebrews 12, notice these verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Here it is, right here it is. Fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here it is again. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not lose or not grow weary and lose heart. How do you keep from growing weary in the battle? How do you keep from losing heart with the kind of challenges we're facing? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, by looking to Him, by making sure that our gaze is focused on Him, our focus is Christ, so that everything that happens to us and everything that comes our way, every challenge that we face and everything we go through is viewed through the lens of our focus on Jesus. Paul was like that. You read Philippians 1. Paul's writing a note to the Philippian church to explain, he says, all the things that have happened to me. And he tells them, I'm in a Roman prison. But he says, you know what? Because of that, the gospel of Christ is being preached to people in, in uh, the emperor's household. So I get to preach Christ to a new audience. And he says, there's some other preachers out there that are preaching, and some of them have some pretty impure motives. They think that now that I'm in prison, they can gain their own following, and they're doing it really, really out of envy or strife. But you know what? What I choose to focus on is that at least Christ is being preached. And then he went on to explain, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to me for sure. I'm in a strait betwixt two, he says, to use the old King James language, having a desire to depart 
and to be with Christ, which is far better. But to um, remain in the flesh is more needful for you because if that happens, he says in verse 26, I get to serve Christ by serving you. So do you see Paul's focus? He's in prison. He thinks he's going to be released to continue to serve. He's not sure of that. And this is difficult, hard, obviously. But his focus is on Christ. He's looking to Jesus. I'm in prison, but I get to preach Christ to some people I wouldn't do otherwise. Other preachers are preaching Christ, maybe for the wrong motives. God will deal with that. At least they're preaching Christ. If I die, I get to be with Christ. If I stay here, I get to serve Christ. It's all about Christ. His focus is on Jesus. And that's where we are to fix our eyes. That's where our focus is to be. So God tells us, be focused. Os Guinness, in his 2016 book, Impossible People, tells the story of a last visit with John R.W. Stott before Stott died. If you're familiar with the name John R.W. Stott, he was one of the greatest spokesmen for evangelicalism in the last half of the 1900s. Great writer, great preacher, pastor of All Souls Church in London, and a great spokesman for the faith. Died in 2011 at 90 years old. Stott wrote some amazing commentaries, some amazing books. I have a number of them in my library and have always been blessed and benefited from them. But Osgenis tells this story of his last visit with Stott. He says this, I knew him over many decades, but I will never forget my last visit to his bedside three weeks before he died. After an unforgettable hour and more of sharing many memories over many years, I asked him how he would like me to pray for him. Lying weakly on his back and barely able to speak, he answered in a hoarse whisper, pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. Wow. I'm not sure that's what I would have said. I may have said something like, please pray for my family, and that would have been a legitimate request. Or please pray the pain will not be so bad. But his dying request with all the breath he could muster was, please pray that I'll be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. The focus is to be on Christ. So be focused. There's one final challenge that God gives to Gideon and to us, and it's this. Be trusting. I love this next part of the story. Be trusting. Look at verse 9. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, And by the way, let me stop right there. Gideon's probably not sleeping very well this night. He's down to 300 men. He is now outnumbered 450 to one. Terrible odds. He's probably not sleeping very well. And God shows up again and speaks to him. And, and, you know, the Bible doesn't say Gideon does this. This is the King John translation here right now. But I think this is what I would have done. I think probably I would have said, No, no, God, is it going to be down to me and my second lieutenant now? Not again, please, no. But God doesn't reduce the army anymore. Look at what he says. Get up, go down against the camp, for I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, hang on to that thought for just a moment. We're going to come back to it. If you are afraid to attack, 
Go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as, hang on to that thought too, just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hand. I believe this is one of the most amazing stories of God's providence in all of the Bible. Think of it. God tells Gideon, if you're afraid to go into battle, go down to the camp. You'll overhear something among the Midianites that will give you encouragement to go on and go ahead with the attack. So Gideon finds his way down to the camp. Remember, 135,000 soldiers, tents spread all over the valley. Gideon comes to just the right tent at just the right time, undetected, a tent where God has placed in a Midianite soldier's mind a dream. And God has placed in his friend the interpretation of that dream. And the guy wakes up and starts to tell his dream just at the right time as Gideon shows up at just the right tent, undetected. And Gideon hears this dream, and he hears the interpretation, and all of a sudden Gideon realizes this battle is not between my 300 men and their 135,000 soldiers. This battle is between God and the Midianite army. It is not about me. It is not about my army. It is not about our strength or lack thereof. It is all about God. And I think in that moment, Gideon saw the greatness of God. How do I know that? Well, look at verse 15. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. He did not say, we got this. We can do this. Just believe in your inner self and your best self and you can do He didn't give him a self-help talk. Didn't give him a pep speech. He had seen the greatness of God. And my friend, this is really the crux of the story. This is really the main point of the story. This is the whole peak of the story. It's this, you are never ready for the battles of life until you see the greatness of God, until you understand who he is and see his greatness. You're never ready for your battles. In fact, Gideon wasn't ready. God had told Gideon, anybody who's afraid, send them home, and 22,000 walked home, but Gideon was still afraid. And that leads me to believe that Gideon probably was not humble like he should be either at what God had done, and neither was he really focused. The point being this, God does tell us to be humble, to be fearless, to be focused, but he never tells us to do it on our own because we can't. 
And sometimes when we hear the commands of Scripture, we think, oh, I've got to try real hard. Man, i gotta, I got to be humble. You know, i got to be humble. And now I'm going to try real hard to be fearless. i got to be more courageous. And, and I'm going to work really hard at being focused and not being distracted. And, and all the time God is saying, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. You see, my friend, the gospel is not only for unbelievers, it's for us too. The gospel tells unbelievers you can't get to heaven on your own works and your own merit. You need a Savior. And the gospel tells us as believers you can't fulfill any of the requirements of the Word of God. You can't be or do what God wants you to be or do. Apart from Him, you need Him just as much as you need Him for salvation. You must see the greatness of God or you will cave in in your battles. I've been doing a lot of meditating on Isaiah chapter 40 of late because Isaiah 40 offers a stunning picture of how big God is. The oceans hold 340 quintillion gallons of water. A quintillion is a one with 18 zeros. 340 quintillion gallons of water, and Isaiah 40 verse 12 says that God holds the oceans in the hollow of his hand. That's how big our God is. The earth weighs six sextillion metric tons. A sextillion is one with 21 zeros. The earth weighs six sextillion metric tons. I I can't begin to imagine that number, but Isaiah 40 verse 15 says, when God weighs it, it's like a piece of dust on the scales. That's how big our God is. Did you know that the known universe is 30 billion light years across the known universe? Astronomers tell us 30 billion light years. A light year is the distance that light travels in a year. It travels 186,000 miles in a second, seven and a half times around the earth in one second. Do the math. This is a number that is way too big for us to imagine. And the Bible says that God measures it with the span of his hand. That's how big our God is. Astronomers tell us there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy. Guess what? There are 100 billion other galaxies with at least 100 billion stars in each of them. And Isaiah 40, 26 says that God names them all. He doesn't just know how many stars there are. He has a name for each one. That's how big our God is. You will never know victory over challenges and battles in your life until you see the greatness of God. All you will do is try your hardest and you will fail. See the greatness of God. You can't help but be humbled. See the greatness of God. It will drive out your fear. See the greatness of God. It will keep your eyes fixed and focused on that majesty and that glory. Here's the point of this whole story. And the hero is not Gideon. The hero is God. Don't try to be more like Gideon. Get your focus on God. Here's the point. The key to every battle you face is worshiping God and trusting what he says. Let's pray together. Father, you are a big God. And we look at our Midianite problems and we think of how great they are. And they are too big for us. Whatever the problems are of these folks here today, I pray that they will choose to see your greatness. Be humbled, fearless, focused, and trusting in your presence.
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.